And it's the you're not alone experience. It's the, buddy, I always want you to know, like when life is hard, when something hurts you, when you're scared, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're anything that you experience is bad, you can call mom, you can call dad, we're gonna show up for you. We might not be able to fix whatever's wrong and we might not be able to fight your battle. You never have to feel like you're fighting it alone. Like I wish people would do that for their adult relationship partners. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Mother Mask. I'm your host, Annie Breen, registered nutritional therapist, master NLP practitioner, and transformational coach for exhausted mums who don't feel enough. My mission with this podcast is to lead with vulnerability by starting to lift the psychological mask you wear each day that protects you and others from the stuff that's hard to explain and talk about. It's about sharing from the middle, not just the open wounds or the healed scabs, but the messy middle. Let's go for honesty over perfection. Because I believe when you transform yourself, you automatically transform your relationships and parenting by passing down wisdom, not wounds. So if you're up for that, you definitely don't need to do it alone. I'm here to lead you on what could be the greatest adventure of your life, behind the mother mask, back home to yourself. Hello and welcome back to episode 21 of Behind the Mother Mask. I hope you are well and I hope you enjoyed my little solo episode marathon. (laughs) It's actually really nice to have someone to talk to this week. So this week my guest is Matthew Frey. Matt is a relationship coach and author and he very much leans on the lessons of his own failed marriage and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes that he did. He has written the book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, and Matt says this often happens not with a big bang, but a whimper. Matt has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Sunday Times over here, and on ITVs this morning. If you would like to go and check out his work, and I strongly recommend you do, he's also a coach. I'll put the link to his blog and his website, and of course, his book in the show notes. Matt said that the purpose of this book is to raise awareness about the daily behaviors and conditions that lead to relationship sickness and death. He says that it helps you identify communication and relationship killing behavior patterns and points you towards new ideas, skills and resources that will help your relationship thrive. I really love that Matt recognizes there's no one size fits all. And also in this conversation, we talk about the impact of parenthood on our relationship. So this book is very much for you if you want to invest in your relationship and nurture that love story and get a fresh perspective on this. Matt talks about his own divorce and how he journaled to the internet in a bid to make sense of why it happened, but also in a way to process his grief and anger. 
He talks about one of the big shifts that happened in 2016, where he wrote the blog, she divorced me because I left the dishes by the sink. This had a huge response and millions of people have read this. Matt said that it's very much a metaphor for the betrayal and the erosion of trust that can happen over time. He said that his marriage died a thousand deaths before it had officially ended. Matt says that relationship problems are usually occurring not because bad people are doing bad things to the people that they love. Relationship problems crop up amongst perfectly decent and well-intentioned people who are simply living their lives and failing to recognize that others are experiencing pain while we're busy feeling comfortable and not paying attention. He says that the circumstances and behaviors that destroy romantic love, erode trust and poison our emotional health and unknowingly trigger the countdown to the divorce time bomb are often disguised as harmless, innocent, everyday behaviors. I love how he says that usually love doesn't die in a loud, dramatic way. It's not bright or flashy. The problems hide in the shadows. The pain sneaks in in the quiet moments of isolated disconnection when we are alone with our thoughts and a bunch of unanswered questions about what our partners really think and feel about us. Hundreds, maybe thousands of times, my wife tried to communicate that something was wrong, that something hurt, but that doesn't make sense. I'm not trying to hurt her. Therefore, she shouldn't feel hurt. Matt said that we didn't go down in a fiery explosion. We bled out from 10,000 paper cuts, quietly and slowly. She knew something was wrong and I insisted everything was fine. This is how our marriage ends. I hope that you get as much from this conversation as I did. I really enjoyed speaking to Matt and his book is so, so insightful. So without further ado... Let's get into episode 21. So hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, Annie. I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Oh, awesome. Now, I listened to your episode you did with Zoe Blasky on the Mother Kind podcast, and I thought, I need to speak to him. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Zoe was wonderful. It was uh, super grateful to be there, too. She was, She's good at what she does, and she's really sweet. Oh, she is. Yes. This will probably go off on some tangents. I'm not quite as articulate as her. <laughs> but hey, how? So I really just wanted to jump in with the beginning. Okay. Um, and I actually did. I listened to your book. I'm nearly at the end, but I've not interviewed anyone who's written a book before. So <laughs> I've not had to listen to one. But because of it, I've got so many notes and there's just so many kind of light bulbs and things that I want to touch on. But the beginning really touched me. And I think it just aligns beautifully with this podcast being behind the mother mask and talking to mums. And it's your dedication to your son and the mother of your son. I'm just going to read it. But you put to my son, be better than your father. Please work to be what your mum deserved from me. Be kind, even when it's hard. Painful things will sometimes happen for you and those you love. And darkness will occasionally fall because it always does. When that happens, you be the light. And to his mother, you put, this is for better or for worse for you because it can't not be. I'm so sorry. That really pulls at my heartstrings, Matt. 
<laughs> do you mind just speaking to that and why you kind of wrote this book and how it came about? I couldn't not dedicate a book about relationships that, as you know, from listening to it, and thank you so much for doing that. My backstory is my parents getting divorced when I was the same age that I divorced, like for my son. So we were both four year old, only child, like only children when our parents split. And there's just been this, I don't know, that's been like the theme of my life, like in, in terms of my personal life. And so I would really love it if he didn't grow up to get married and have a child and then, you know, get divorced. Like that would be so neat. And I didn't know how to, I would have never even known how to like have that conversation until the last 10 years of doing this work. Anyway, so there was no not dedicating it to him, so to speak, but mm -hmm. also his mom. Um, yeah. I also don't arrive at what I believe is invaluable knowledge about what it means to love other people, romantically or otherwise, effectively. And until she makes a decision to like, you know, like end the relationship because how I thought and felt about her decision to do that 10 years ago and how I think and feel about it today are radically different based on my understanding of what she went through during our marriage, right? Back then I didn't get it. Hence why I didn't do anything useful to make it better. And then I, I, I believe I've arrived at useful conclusions about, you know, like how she experienced me. And that's a, you know, spoiler alert. That's like the way to think about the world, I think, is the way other people experience us rather than what we think and feel and intend all the time, because that doesn't always translate. Yeah. And isn't it interesting? Like I often talk about this, especially on this podcast, that we go through shitty stuff. We go through hard stuff. We go through messy stuff. But often pain is our greatest teacher and that's where the magic, that's where our path kind of unfolds. Do you look back on your journey and even though it was painful in parts, do you feel that it was almost meant to happen for you to become the person and father you needed to be? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily apply like fate language to it, but, yeah. but yes, the spirit of what you're asking 100%. Yeah. And I'd choose it every time. I'd choose the worst thing that ever happened to me every time mm -hmm. to not be somebody who is a threat to sabotage his relationships with the people he cares about most. Absolutely would trade that like all the time. It, it doesn't feel like that when you're going through it. And it's, it's easier to say on the, on the back end of like all the awfulness, right? Because it doesn't feel nearly as awful, nearly a decade removed from it as it did when it was happening. Yeah. But, but yes, I mean, in my estimation, completely worth it. The whole because notion of everything worth having in life is worth sort of like working hard to achieve. And sometimes that means like going through discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Because some people don't learn their lessons, you know, um, they don't kind of grow from these situations. They can go down maybe a different path. So I'm really interested to hear then what did happen in terms of this kind of what you went through and how the path kind of unfolded to using this to not just kind of have your own learnings and realization and be the father you are today, but help others. So we can kind of go back yeah. to the beginning. All right. So, all right, there's two parts to that. There's the me part and then there's the help others part. Yes. The me you. part of it is, I'm not going to waste too much time like defending men who make it about them mm -hmm. and who feel like victims because it's such an easy thing to think and feel. And I think we could talk for a long time about it 
Mm-hmm. And, and, but it's not exclusively men. I shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have couched it that way. I think it's often men, right. That are in a similar situation to what I was. And I think it's easy to conclude that your relationship partner is the problem. Yeah. Um, I, I do. And, and, but I, I don't think that's necessarily like germane and useful to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have easily gone down that road. And I think if I wasn't a father, I may have. If I wasn't a father forced to stay geographically local to my ex-wife and have a working relationship with her in which we were both committed to like raising the best child we could. Mm-hmm. For me, I cannot imagine a scenario in which I love my son and want what's best for him, but mistreat his mother. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't jibe with like my world. And I know there are people that don't think about it that way and that's fine, I guess. I don't think it's useful, but they're not, they're not obligated to think as I do. But for me, that was like a no brainer. I have to consider his mother if I'm going to like raise the best child. She needs to also have the best life possible. And that is sort of like the baseline ingredients for like how I thought about it. Yeah. And I'm like, I need to repair this and I need to understand this. And I need to selfishly protect myself from having this happen again. And I need to protect my son from if I were to remarry, for example. And then he gets intertwined with another human or another family. If there were to have been other children or something come along, I can't, can't tear that apart again, just because I don't even, you know, because I, I don't know what I'm doing Mm -hmm. because I can't even explain how this happened is how I felt at the time. So it was like, I have to be able to understand what I could have done differently, whether it was partner selection or whether it was me and my behavior or it's a combination of both, I better understand it if I'm to sort of like ensure that this won't happen again. Yeah. And so that was like, it started as a selfish exercise. And then I think, as you might remember from the book, I, I was like self-medicating with vodka at the time and um, just because it helped. And, and I don't want you to imagine anything like exceedingly dysfunctional, but you know, like multiple times a week, I would just have drinks alone, which is not something I historically do. I'm more of a social, social drinker. Um, and I call a therapist one night, like a one one 800 number. And she convinces me that I need to be like journaling. And I thought it was stupid to like write in a private journal, even though I've come to believe it's an exceedingly useful practice, even though I'm not disciplined enough to do it. Um, and I just, I just kept like drinking vodka and I, I just put it on the internet. I just decided to like journal on the internet in like a blog form. I didn't really think anybody would read it anyway. I thought it would be kind of like a journal with maybe like two or three people that were like coworkers or something that might take a look at it to laugh, you know, like during lunch or something. And um, that's the story of how it organically evolved into wanting to help people because the way WordPress blogging works is it works almost like a social platform. And it turned out a lot of people were interested in topics of divorce and relationships. And so people started paying attention and I was really blown away that they were paying attention, but I very quickly adjusted my mindset from, I'm going to write these like sort of like sloppy single guy, you know, drinking it off and going out and doing whatever I want stories to self-reflections on like how I contributed to the demise of my family. Cause I thought that was the most more useful thing to do than whatever I was originally going to do. How many of us don't reflect enough, though? I think I talk about self-reflection all the time. I don't think we give ourselves the space, the headspace, the kind of psychological space, the time to actually sit and reflect. 
And whether we do that individually or as a couple, I think it's so, so powerful. And you, from what I read, kind of found your your processing of this and healing through this because you found out you weren't the only one. And I think you said that divorce was the huge fear of like loneliness. And I think a lot of us feel lonely in our relationships sometimes as well, but to actually vocalize it and speak up and to see that you're not the only one, but actually your words were having an impact on others and helping them self-reflect. That gives me goosebumps because that's magic. Well, and you've undoubtedly experienced it via this podcast where you've gotten the feedback where it's like, thank you for sharing your story because now I don't feel like I'm the only one who thinks and feels things like that. I think everybody who shares honest stories about their lives can find a group of people to like echo back, me too. And then that is just a really, that's a powerful experience that I'd never really had before. Um largely because I'd been insulated from anything particularly bad happening to me. I was very blessed. One of the reasons divorce was so hard, I've come to understand later, is because I didn't really experience a lot of trauma and adversity growing up. Um, I didn't, other than my parents' divorce, which I don't want to make light of. They lived many, many, many kilometers, hours apart. And it, right, I couldn't just see my father if I wanted to. It was five, six months before I was going to see him again. And, and that was hard. For like a little boy to like miss dad and, and to miss mom when I was with him, the, the little time that I was with him. But that was my my childhood and, and I didn't like it very much. And so I did have a strong association with divorce equals pain, divorce equals inconvenience, things that you don't want. And I I took it really seriously. When I got married, I had no intention of that relationship coming to an end, yeah. which I think speaks to just the amount of uh, ignorance I had about what I, what my wife had needed and what I wasn't capable of delivering. I just didn't, I didn't even have a framework for thinking about it like that. And I frankly think most people who enter relationships don't know how to think about it like that either. So interesting. And going through your own divorce, which we'll get to, has that kind of made you look back and reflect in a more compassionate or understanding kind of way of what you went through as a child? Because I think you said you were filled with anger about feeling the same emotions that you felt when you were little that you kind of learned just to kind of push down. Yes. Early in my divorce process, I was surprised to feel a similar sensation to what I remembered feeling at five, six, seven, eight years old. And mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I thought those days had been behind me and and then here they are again. Yeah. And I, I didn't like it. And I don't know. And then, right. And then I'm a projector. I have no idea if my son felt this way. He probably didn't. Mm-hmm. He probably felt different than than I did about my divorce, given mm-hmm. given the circumstance, given that his mother and I have have frankly think we've done a really nice job. Yeah. Um, it took it took years for the school community to figure out that we weren't still married because we were always at the same things together. And that was so radically divergent from my experience. And and he was always it was only a couple of days in between seeing one of his parents at any given time rather than six months. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. I don't know. He's 14. One of these days we'll talk about it yeah. um, if, if he wants to. Yeah. But, but uh, he seems he seems all right. Yeah. No, amazing. I think that that's such a huge difference. And we learn so much, don't we? We learn how we want to do things and how we don't want to do things. And we're able to kind of be the model that we want to be. 
kind of away from it, our own imprinting, our own experiences. So going into your divorce, I want to bring up the the glass yeah. beside the sink. Yeah, um, that, while largely serving, I think, as a metaphor for, uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent, I think, conversation for what's allowed to matter to somebody in a relationship mm-hmm. is, is really the way that I think about it. Uh, I used to think, apparently, that I was allowed to render judgment on what my wife was allowed to care about, I think, is the moral of that story. It got really popular. I wrote that as a standalone article in 2016. It was called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. I couldn't not include it in the book um, because of the impact that that article had and the reach that it had. Um, And it still generates an enormous amount of discussion. There are a group of people, and this kind of goes back to me saying, I think it makes sense for certain men when their relationships end to feel as if it was their people. Again, I keep saying men, but it's just mostly men, but it's not always. And, mm-hmm. and that their relationship partner was responsible for what was wrong and you know, what was bad about the relationship, um, blaming them. And that, that a person like that would never learn anything. They would never self-reflect because the other person was at fault. And when you have that mindset, you're not going to grow at all. The dish by the sink. People want to argue about it, and I'm happy to. There are a lot of people, usually men, who read that article or read that section of the book, and they say, Matt, what about you? Are you not allowed to want the dish by the sink there? That It was a drinking glass, for the record. It wasn't like a plate with a bunch of like food scraps on it. It was a drinking glass that I would fill with water in the morning to take like vitamins and supplements and medicine and things like that. And but nonetheless, right, where she and I are having a debate about whether that glass should be there, my wife and I at the time, um, a lot of a lot of men specifically, and I think a few women over the have said, why aren't you and your opinion, your feelings about wanting that to be there allowed to matter as much as your wife's opinion about it not being there? And I used to not know how to answer it, but I know how to answer it today. The truth is, my feelings do matter as much as hers. They always did. They do. There is nothing about one relationship partner's lived experience that is inherently less relevant or less important than the other relationship partner's lived experience. That's true. But what I didn't understand during my marriage and that I do understand today is that if the glass wasn't by the sink for me to just easily grab and fill with water in the morning, I would have to go to a cabinet and get a new one out. And I'm not sure how many times in the course of my marriage I did that, but I promise you, I never experienced pain. Not one time when that happened. It never hurt. Went, got a glass, and probably left it by the sink half the time after I was done with it. My wife, on the other hand, at some point in the relationship, and I can't begin to understand when the transition happened, when the inflection point was, but at some point, it was no longer a glass by the sink symbolizing a a difference of opinion between she and I. At some point, it became a piece of evidence that I would always choose what I wanted, what I thought, what I felt over her. Mm. And that hurt. So she used to walk into the kitchen and it would hurt to see it there because she could only conclude one of two things. Matt leaves that there on purpose because he knows it hurts me and he doesn't care. That's the worst thing that could be true. And the best thing that can be true is that 
I don't matter enough to him to even like consider and remember and think about when he's putting there. He is completely blind and oblivious to the degree of pain that I feel when he does things like this. And let's not isolate it to one thing, right? This isn't literally just the glass by the sink. It's a, uh, a symptom of like this entire like existence where I was blind to how things I said and things that I did resulted in another human being like feeling. I just was because I could not imagine a person feeling hurt by a dish by the sink. And I just applied that like logic to like everything in my world. Well, if I wouldn't feel hurt or angry or scared or sad or anything by that, other people shouldn't either, which is an exceedingly egocentric, selfish, borderline narcissistic way to view the world. Anyway, and so that's the story that the dish by the sink, it's, it wasn't really actual. It did not end our marriage. It, I just thought it was a nice symbolic sort of like conversation that represents what I think most people go through relationally, which is somebody says, hey, something's wrong. And then the other person responds in a manner that does not repair in any way, shape or form, whatever's wrong, does not, does not support yeah. any part of it. And I, it's, it's rough. It's so begins in my estimation, the downfall of a relationship is when that cycle begins to happen. And it usually happens pretty early. It just doesn't hurt that much yet. It doesn't hurt until it's happened, you know, a thousand times. Yeah. I mean, it's not really about the dish. It's not about the glass. And I know it so well. I've not had a divorce. And that's because we are learning through this process. You know, a lot of the things that you talk about, which we'll get into, but it's not really about the glass and how many people are going to be resonating with that right now. Because if you can't see what's behind that, it's really what's on the inside and you wrote this before we get into that you wrote virtually everyone is affected by the negative consequences of shitty marriages and divorce the information and life skills required for people to participate effectively in healthy sustainable romantic relationships appear to be missing agreed from the majority of people's skills sets and vocabulary it's nobody's fault but it is our responsibility of course but it's not our fault Neither our parents or our grandparents taught us these things or even talked about them in a way that prepared us for the rigors of adult relationships. But don't blame them. Please, no, no one taught them either. If I had to distill the problems in failed relationships down to one idea, it would be a colossal failure to make the invisible visible. Can we talk about that? Yeah, the premise of my work is this, and I want to um, want a disclaimer. I don't get to decide what's good and bad, right and wrong in the world, right? I gave up uh, ten years ago. I hung up that I get to decide what other people are allowed to think and feel. I, I don't get to decide. So forgive my use of good, bad, right, wrong. I'm using it in a very generic way. There are so-called bad people in the world who do bad things. There are. There are awful awful things that that we label and and sort of like universally agree are awful really overtly harmful violent uh malicious just just things that happen to people and they're cruel and i don't know how to like think like a person who who does those things um i believe very strongly of the billions of people who will get divorced in the next five years that the smallest 
of microfraction percentages are comprised of those kind of people. It's just two people who truly wanted to get married, met every word when they said, I do. I promise to love you forever. They knew, they understood the conditions of the relationship and they weren't lying when they said it. And then there's just this slow erosion that sort of sneakily like creeps in and, and just like breaks relationships down and tears people apart. And, and it's just, if it was so obvious, if it was visible, if it was easy and tangible to like hold on to and to see and to describe, I think everybody would do it pretty well, right? I think eight, nine out of 10 would like, oh, I choose that. It is so difficult, I think, to sort of like latch on to like what this looks and feels like. You know, I've, I've spent so much time. It's funny, I talk to a lot of guys and they're, they're just people, but, but again, mostly men. And they, they're just getting into this usually when I meet them. And they're like almost overwhelmed by how do I like learn how to see this? And they, they, they ask me about it. And I'm like, well, you're also talking to me after the proverbial like 10,000 hours of investment, like in the process, like I, I was exactly like you or way worse, you know, 10 years ago. And I have thought about this, spoken about this, um, you know, read about this for, for a decade now like just over and over and over again. And, and that to me is really the answer to the riddle of how we make the invisible visible. But but that's really the problem. It's we hurt people and we don't know that they're hurt. And then they say I hurt and we're like, that's ludicrous. How could you possibly be hurt by this thing that no sane person would, would think hurts? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I think I'm a good person. I think I'm pretty smart. I think I understand basic concepts like right and wrong. And you're telling me like, this is bad and this is painful. And I'm really sorry, but I fundamentally disagree that that's true. So it sounds to me like your warped perception of reality is the problem here and not anything that I'm doing. I just think that is more or less the thought process and dynamic that slowly kills relationships. Because any one of these conversations isn't like a huge deal. It's not going to be a deal breaker by any stretch. But when you pile them up over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, there's no safety and trust left in a relationship. And and that's to me when there's very little coming back from that. And it comes down to safety and trust. And I think you articulate that so well in your book. I think what many women can't articulate, sometimes we feel these overwhelming emotions that we can't explain how we feel in a way that our partner, husband will fully understand because sometimes we don't fully understand sometimes it really is hard to put words to those emotions and what you say here is we didn't go down in a fiery explosion we bled out from 10,000 paper cuts quietly and slowly and I think that's so so true it's the I say small stuff but the seemingly small stuff that add up to the big stuff and another thing that I found is who the hell does like (laughs) personal development or that kind of thing before a marriage like I found my biggest kind of awakening has come from motherhood because I couldn't hide from that stuff that came up being in a relationship and being in a relationship and being a mum you know the pressures that being a parent put on a relationship that all of a sudden the relationship goes to the bottom of the pile and I think that that's quite 
dangerous. We don't actually think about our love story or our vision for our relationship. And that's another thing that maybe we could talk about, like, you know, a vision for the future, especially coming out of a pandemic. People have shrunk the horizons, living in uncertainty. I know it put a lot of strain on people's relationships, but actually, what do you want from your relationship? And this process of mutual evolution, like where we kind of grow together or grow as a family. And sometimes a lot of this stuff comes up and it feels difficult. It's personal. It's historic. It's unresolved trauma from the past. You know, and I think sometimes we bring those those childhood wounds kind of get triggered sometimes through relationship kind of discussions or the seemingly important stuff where we kind of revert back to that unresolved stuff. And we don't really know how to handle it as an individual, um, let alone hold space for someone else that's going through that. So sorry, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it really does. And and as something on this side to what you're saying about the pressures of of parenthood and having a ch- child, I, I, the way that I've come to think about that, I obviously think the stakes with children are higher and more intense than virtually anything that can put strain, mm-hmm. pressure on a relationship. But, but any significant, like life pressure, these these so called paper cuts, these little things that happen, I think if it's just you two. And you're blessed enough to go through life without any significant shakeups. I kind of think people can can carry on like that. I really do. They can just get by not making any changes for life. But the introduction of children, the introduction of major illness, the introduction of financial stress or um, or, or, or trauma, grief related to a family or a friend, family member or a friend dying um, or, or getting really sick, just anything that when you think about like the pie chart of like time, energy, investment, and, and if, if that gets to just stay pure and it's just you two, I think most people can like go the distance, mm. but life throws things at us. And frequently we choose children like voluntarily. And that is, is just so huge. And I think it exacerbates that it exacerbates the, what tends to be an existing inequality already in terms of shared responsibilities the invisible, the so-called invisible stuff, mm-hmm. which I think, as you well know, women carry a significantly higher burden of historically than than men do of this invisible stuff that that so many men are blind to, and then and then you, you've got the added problem of I can never say something's wrong, and have my relationship partner speak and act in a manner that feels like being loved and cared for and supported and understood, like afterward, like that that is such a infrequent occurrence in the average relationship because right there's usually some sense of like debate or defensiveness or whatever um that stems from that and then i don't know again nothing ever gets repaired and that's okay for just long enough until it's not okay and that can be a year that can be 10 years but it always feels the same in the end yeah and we spend so much time defending ourselves, don't we? You can just see the conversations now. We defend our kind of beliefs and those things we hold sacred. And we just kind of get stuck defending ourselves rather than being able to see it from the other person's perspective or, you know, not feel that we have to fix it or make it better. That if we can actually sit in the pain, I think that is 
massive. One of the most valuable lessons I learned. And Brene Brown, the great and wonderful Brene Brown. I was just going to mention. <laughs> that. Not personally, but just her work. Yeah. And, and we're going to get on to the invalidation triple threat. But I was actually thinking about her because she's, I heard her say once like about, you can't walk in someone else's shoes like you physically can't do that we can't pretend that we know what someone is feeling and the only way that we can learn is if we ask them to share their story and I think you talk about this is how well do we actually know our partners I mean really intimately know them and their backstory and where they've come from and what's made them form their beliefs and values and all these things and we don't know that unless we listen to their story but also believe them and that, I think, is the thing. It might not be our experience or our kind of emotional experience or our beliefs, but it's theirs. So then we kind of get onto this invalidation triple threat because I think validation, oh my goodness, I didn't know what that wasn't in my vocabulary until I was married or a mother. Uh- <laughs> yeah. oh, same, my ex-wife used to say it to me. She's like, you're invalidating my feelings. And she'd say it kindly, by the way. And I was so annoyed with that word because I didn't understand how it differed from me just agreeing with her all the time, which is by the way, what I get from like so many of my clients are like, it sure sounds like you're saying, I just need to agree with my wife all the time. Otherwise I'm going to have a horrible relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I I promise you, I'm not saying it. And I strongly discourage you from agreeing with your wife. If you don't agree with her, Mm -hmm. I'm like, but, but you absolutely are conflating the idea of agreement and validation. And so the invalidation triple thread, I'll try to be as brief as possible. The three ways I think people, frequently men in heterosexual relationships, invalidate their relationship partners whenever their relationship partner comes to them to to say that something's wrong. And I just think this is this sort of like borderline invisible condition that can be mitigated to uh, begin a trust restoration process in relationships. You have to see it, you have to notice it, and you have to make a decision that I'm not going to do it anymore is like the trick is like learning how to notice that we do this the three ways my wife would come to me and she'd say hey matt a bad thing happened i feel bad about it and i would disagree with i would disagree with whatever she'd said and this wasn't me trying to be a jerk i really believed something different than her like perhaps she said um i didn't like the way judith spoke to me at that party last night you know and then i'm like defending judith all of a sudden i'm like no 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 like she probably meant like this other thing right like So version one of the invalidation triple threat is I disagree intellectually with like what you're saying to me right now. And I think the cynical interpretation, which doesn't happen the first time we do this, but it does happen the thousandth time we do this. The the cynical interpretation is you're stupid, you're crazy, or, or you're just wrong. So anytime you're trying to communicate something makes you feel bad, and I don't agree that you're thinking about it the right way. I'm going to respond in a manner that implies you're wrong, you're stupid, or you're crazy. I did not use those words with my wife. Mm-hmm. But does it matter if if I'm constantly challenging her lived intellectual experience? I think I think it's reasonable for her to conclude that I that I think one of those three things all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, version two, my wife comes to me and she says, hey, Matt, a bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time, she and I are like seeing the world in an identical way, like, like intellectually. Like I, I interpreted that experience same as you that is completely what happened this time i'm confused about why she feels whatever she feels about it i'm like all right that's what happened but why are you making such a big deal out of it like that's 
That's not very important. Why are you blowing it up into this big thing? Um, once again, not trying to be a jerk, not most of the time, but the implication is that you're weak. It's that you're dramatic. It's that you're hypersensitive. There's something wrong with the way that you feel about things. And that's something that you need to fix. I did that to her all the time. Um, not all the time. When I disagreed with her. Yeah. Th that's when this happens. During agreement, everybody generally feels supported and loved. It's during disagreement where like this invalidation triple threat rears its head. Yeah. Uh, version three, wife comes to me and says, Matt, you did something and it really hurt me. And I say, wait a minute, let me just explain like what, what I was dealing with at the time and what I believed to be true, what I was trying to do. And I think after you understand my side of it, you won't be hurt anymore. Mm -hmm. And the experience I think is I'm coming to my husband I'm trying to communicate that I'm hurt by something. And not only is my pain once again, invisible and completely tossed aside, and he's completely making about his experience right now, but while he's explaining and justifying and defending his actions, I think he's implying that he'll do this again. Like, I think he's saying this was such a brilliant like thing to do as such a justified decision. And I'm going to like double down on it. What's why don't I believe he's going to do that tomorrow and next week and next month? even though I just said, hey, that hurts me when, when like that happens. These are the three ways I think the average person in the average relationship slowly erodes trust. I think the way to boil it down is you can't have a successful conversation. Like it's impossible to have a conversation in which one person expresses pain if, if they're with somebody who, who doesn't like see eye to eye with them about it. And you can't have safety and trust in a relationship in which that exchange can't take place reliably. So my wife needed to be able to come to me and say, hey, Matt, something's wrong and have me respond in a manner that indicated I give a shit that something's wrong. And if I don't get it, I need to get it so that you can trust me to like be useful tomorrow so that that doesn't happen. Or again, like you'd referred like referred to earlier, the idea of sitting with them in the pain, so to speak, just you're not alone. I get it. I'm sorry that happened to you. And if there's anything I can do, I'm here like you're not alone. So I tell this story in my coaching work all the time, and you might remember this from the book. I, I use a monster into the bed analogy. Um, it was truly the thought exercise I used to break this, what I think is a really, really unhealthy relationship habit in my life. And I tell this story to most of my clients. I imagine my son, who's now 14, but he used to be four, wakes up and let's pretend like I'm up late watching sports or something. And, and, and he just wakes up and he's crying and I'm going to sprint up to his room because I'm his dad and I love him and I want to make sure nothing's wrong. And he says, he thinks there's a monster under the bed. And so in like a nanosecond, I'm interpreting like this story and I'm saying there isn't a monster under the bed. And the simplest way for this to like be solved, for this to go away, is for me to convince him of what I know, there's no monster under the bed. And then he won't be scared, he won't be crying and I get to go do this thing that I wanna be doing instead of like managing a dramatic child who's afraid of something that doesn't exist. And, and so I'm like, you know, buddy, there's no monster to the bed. Everything's fine. Go to sleep. You know, you're fine. Like I, I've got things I need to be doing right now. You're okay. You're too big to be crying about this. There's no such thing as monsters, something like that. Right. Uh, and then I leave and I like to talk to like my clients about what's the result of that exchange with my son. I, I think he's still afraid. I think he's in the dark crying. And I think he just learned that if dad doesn't approve of the thing that I'm dealing with right now, of the hurt that I feel, that 
he implies that I'm stupid, that I'm wrong, that I'm crazy, that I'm weak, that I'm hypersensitive. And then he abandons me literally or metaphorically to cry alone in the dark because he's got better things to do. Um, I don't think that means kid doesn't love dad or kid doesn't think dad loves him or her. I think that kids trusts parent less after that. Right. I think that's the math result of that exchange. It's not, I don't feel loved. It's I can't trust dad. And if so, if that happens every time I'm like, Hey, mom or dad, something's wrong. And that's the response that I get. I'm going to feel worse afterward. And then I'm going to be the kind of kid that hides stuff from my parents because inviting them to be part of my world doesn't feel better. It's a negative experience. It makes the, it makes the bad worse is I think what the average human like thinks and feels in that situation. Anyway, and I also like to point out, like I think something really important. Um, I'm right about the monster not being there. I am. Like I'm completely right, factually speaking. I love my son more than I love anybody on earth. And I would never, ever say or do thing that was like designed to hurt him. Mm-hmm. Not ever. And I think those are the same three conditions that are true in disagreements with our relationship partners. We believe whether we're whether it's right or not. We believe we're correct in whatever it is that that we're debating or arguing. We we think truth is on our side, regardless. Um, I, I would argue it's it's an irrelevant. It's irrelevant to to whether trust grows or or shrinks after these kinds of exchanges. Is being right is to me not a useful metric. Um, and then again, love my relationship partner and would never try to hurt them. Mm-hmm. But the math result afterwards is like a little bit of trust goes away. You know, what does the reverse look like? I run upstairs to my crying son. He's afraid of a monster. I'm going to hug him. I'm going to say, dude, I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but like, I'm really sorry that you're afraid right now. Like I've been scared before and that's a really awful experience. So I'm sorry that that's where you're going through. Let's turn the light on. Let's make sure there's no monster under the bed. And then I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be with you until you know it's safe to go back to sleep because the thing that I want to impart on him more than anything. And the thing I really want my clients and myself and everybody in the world to give to their relationship partners is the experience you already talked about. And it's the you're not alone experience. It's the, buddy, I always want you to know, like when life is hard, when something hurts you, when you're scared, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're anything that you experience is bad, you can call mom, you can call dad, we're going to show up for you. We might not be able to fix whatever's wrong and we might not be able to fight your battle for you. You never have to feel like you're fighting it alone ever. Like, I wish people would do that for their adult relationship partners. That is so powerful. Yeah. It's such a powerful story. And I think when we put it in the context of our children, we get it. It's so much easier to be like gentle with children. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think we, the first story by there's no monster, you're fine. That might be true, but we invalidate their reality. And I think being able to see it from that comforting perspective and attached to the emotion, I can see you're scared, even if you have a different perspective, is so, so powerful. And what an amazing way to kind of create that that safety and that trust and that bond. And do you know what? It's not hard. It's, it's actually not hard. I think sometimes we think there needs to be a really complex solution to what can feel really complex and complicated in relationships but actually it's not it's being able to sit with them and validate how they're feeling 
And I personally, what I found going on this kind of motherhood relationship, kind of growth, healing adventure is that I would resist or avoid my own uncomfortable emotions. Like I didn't know how to regulate myself. There were many ghosts in the walls from my past that I hadn't looked at. And they kind of came up during motherhood. And and I think that going through that process of looking at that and being brave and courageous and not just kind of shutting down Pandora's box really allowed me to kind of, I guess, expand my perspective. And then like that rippled out to my parenting and be able to hold space for Bonnie, but also for Dan. You know, Dan is very logical and I'm highly emotional. And what you were saying about the like crazy, oversensitive type picture can totally connect with that. And I think a lot of my clients and listeners will be able to, too, because a lot of the time you feel like you're going crazy if that person doesn't experience or try and understand your reality in the way that you are kind of experiencing it. So I absolutely love that story. It makes so much sense. Right. So the lesson is it's not useful to get hung up on whether someone should or should not feel a certain way yeah it's it it is relationally not a particularly useful skill Mm -hmm. um i don't think trust will ever grow in a relationship in which we insist on trying to sell the other person that what we think and feel about the world is somehow more factual or correct or better than what they think and feel about the world um and i really had to leave that behind that was a it was just more or less the kind of thing that was modeled for me growing up. And uh, I don't want to like blame all the lovely people that I was around growing up, but that was just how people were. And I didn't perceive it to be unloving. You know what I mean? I didn't perceive it to be mean. Um, but yeah, serial invalidators all around. Yeah, a hundred percent. And of course we don't like we're not here to blame or shame, but it is about learning and reparenting and doing things maybe differently, maybe sometimes the same, you know, it's taking forward the gifts, but all the, so the things that you don't want to do, it's certainly not about blame or shame. In fact, if we hadn't been through that, we wouldn't be doing this now, maybe, you know, so I see it as a kind of a positive. I'd just love to ask you also, you said, because I know I speak to a lot of women who feel highly stressed, like they're exhausted and maybe they're like kind of the intimacy, the romantic intimacy has gone. They've got low libido and that side of the relationship is kind of under strain, should we say, or not there. And you, you've you said in your book that romantic love is the fourth most important ingredient for a healthy marriage. And we've probably touched on it by now, especially with the safety and trust, but just to kind of reiterate the the top three that kind of comes before that, how do we get to the point where we can kind of invest in our relationship in that way, in a healthy way? No, I thought that was interesting that it's funny. It's uh, my least favorite thing in the book that I left hanging was that I said that and then I didn't, I didn't sort of like follow up or communicate what I felt the top three things were, but I do. I just don't like provide like a numerical ranking. I mean, there's different ways to think about it, but obviously I think safety and trust. I think I I use the word trust, but I think it's interchangeable with this concept of safety. Like I feel safe because I trust this human being. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people who conflate the notion of trust with like honesty. And this isn't about lying. And this isn't about like 
not feeling like abused or not being with a criminal, it, it almost lives more in the reliability space, the consistency space. I can trust that this person will reliably, consistently behave in a manner that I experience as being cared for, being respected. Like that is like sort of like the best way I know how to put it. And I think that's far and away the most important thing a relationship needs to like go the distance. But then the, 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 all the rest of it just feeds that, right? You know, number two would be relationship skills, which live under the umbrella of, of, of the word and the idea for me, consideration, which is what I spend the vast majority of my coaching time talking about. Yeah. This notion of, and you already said it, right? I, I know my relationship partner. I know what, let's just be like really general and simple about it. I know what makes them feel good. I know what makes them feel bad. And because I know what makes them feel good and know what makes them feel bad, I am a reliable relationship partner for meeting their wants and needs as, as we go through life together. Right? The, I think the majority of relationship partners don't fully know their partner. They don't understand why a glass by the sink results in their relationship partner feeling a certain way. And that failure to see the glass there and anticipate that it will result in their relationship partner feeling bad feeds into the, I can't trust him or her or whoever, right? I can't trust them because they don't even know like why this is there. Again, they're either doing it on purpose because they don't care about me or they don't care about me enough to even like think of it, to even like remember that I'm a person. So we can be like really well-intentioned and sort of accidentally hurt somebody every day. And we're still not going to have anybody's trust. Yeah. Um, and, and anyway, to achieve that, I think that we must develop relationship skills under the umbrella of I consider how other people experience me. Yeah, I have to know that. Um, and then three is we just got done talking about it. effective communication. Like you have to be able to say something's wrong and have the other person behave in a manner you experience as they're also interested in making this thing I experience as wrong going away. And they're not abandoning me just because they don't agree it's a problem. Yeah. Which is usually in a lot of, I mean, I don't want to say usually, but it, I, I do think, I think it's more than half. I think more than half of relationships are comprised of that conversation. Hey, something's wrong. And the other person's like, is it? Is it wrong? Or are you just thinking and feeling about it the wrong way? And then we don't, we don't get to have. So they all conflate. But I think the condition of safety and trust the the skill of I consider and the, the the mindful skill of I can communicate effectively are all way more important than I feel emotional love for you. Because I think tons of people feel emotionally love emotional love for one another and then still have to end the relationship because there's so much pain and mistrust there. Yeah. Love does not preclude pain from existing all the time. Probably exacerbates it. Hundred <laughs> percent. And you're right, it's it's a skill. You know, this is not a one-time quick fix. Oh, I get it now. And we're just going to have amazing conversations. And so it's not, is it? Like, oh my God, I, I know this so well that this is really a craft to master. It's not a one-time quick fix. And we're going to get it wrong and we're going to mess up. But for me, it's the intention. And like you said, the consideration that I'm trying to be there and I want to hear I want to understand I think Gabor Mate talks about this as like the emotional atmosphere and it's exactly what you were saying about the invisible 
it's that kind of intention and we pick up on that and our children pick up on that we're not always getting it right and we might fall over our words and not always say the right thing but a lot of communication is non-verbal it's that energetic kind of I want to be with you I want to sit with you I want to understand I'm here type thing and I think that goes a long way than getting it perfectly articulately right yes oh I completely I think it's okay to fumble and to get it wrong I I completely agree. I actually think it's okay to not consider and to not validate when you're beginning the work. Mm. If you notice, if you notice, oh my God, like I didn't even consider that. I didn't consider you or I just invalidated you again. Like I just tried to convince you what I think and feel matters more than what you think and feel. I'm really sorry I did that. I actually think that would improve like a relationship rather than just doubling down, which is what we always do. Until, until we flip whatever switch within us we need to flip. Yeah. Um. To to recognize that we we sabotage our relationships accidentally when we when we fail to do this work when we fail to consider and we fail to validate the lived experiences of other people. And just a quick story to put it into context: a kind of ongoing theme between me and Dan was when I start to talk about my work, he looks disinterested. Right? You know this kind of shutdown. <laughs> And it's a bit funny to talk about it, but it used to trigger me so much. But it wasn't really about me talking to him about my work. It's that the feelings underneath that, that I felt like isolated and on my own with it. That I'm a company of one, that I almost needed that reassurance and maybe felt a little bit helpless that things weren't going the way that I was. So it was those feelings and themes that kind of run through and you can connect them back to other situations earlier on. And now that that, that has changed and it's changed over time, about how we kind of conduct those conversations. And it has changed. It's so much more positive just to be able to kind of invest in that time, I think. And and yeah, so I just wanted to share that because I know I hear that quite a lot that sometimes what's important to us is not very interesting to our partner <laughs> and vice versa. Same, yeah. It's the same as the disagreement thing. And, I, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. I am because it is really useful. I um many, many dinner table conversations and car rides where nothing I said or did would have reinforced the idea that I loved my wife. It would have felt somewhat dismissive to her, I would think, the way that I I participated in a lot of those moments. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know how to see it like that then. Mm-hmm. Um which again, sort of speaks to the problem. Yeah. We've learned to go to each other's bus stops. (laughs) Okay, I got two more questions. I just want to talk about the kind of bigger picture and the societal kind of issue, because you said something that I completely agree with, that we just keep inheriting not knowing how to do stuff. And I'm really, I'm really into through my work, kind of transgenerational trauma and cycle breaking and kind of creating a new norm you know these things are common like you say but they're not necessarily normal and we have the power to change that and maybe that is an unconventional way of doing things you know it's okay to be different it's what works for you but I think we want to evolve and not just revolve around these like unhealthy habits and so how do we change this how do we educate ourselves and younger generations to change it 
hard, right? Like, um, <laughs> no, I, it, I, you know, I think about this, you know, it's, it's easy to say, I mean, what's the order, the order, I think logistically, we have to practice it effectively. We have to pass it along to the younger generation. Uh, as parents, I think we're obligated to do it for our children. And I think it's an easy, like it's easy to want to, if you know how to see it. Again, mm. the biggest problem is that this lives in an invisible place for, for the majority of people walking around. This is not a thing I think that most people think about. This no. concept of like how I'm speaking and acting is having a really significant impact on the quality of my relationships and on the psyche and emotional makeup of the people in my sphere. I don't think that level of awareness exists for most people. Mm -hmm. I'd be wrong, but I don't think. And that in and of itself is the problem. Mm -hmm. So, right, we become aware, then we learn the skills, then we teach our children. But even that's not enough. We've got to like find a way to get it what's mainstream, so to speak. And I, I really think we're going to get there. Um, I think it's early childhood education, I, right? I, I think finding a way to implement it into that system somehow, some way, and I'm not that, that that'll be complicated, yeah. but it's being done on, and to various degrees in certain places. And I've been so delighted because people have heard me say in interviews that, and possibly in the book, I don't remember if I wrote it or not, mm -hmm. that I really think like finding a way to reach young people with these skills and it doesn't have to be you should do this because it's you know i don't want it to be moralist this isn't about preaching this is about protecting them mm. from having mm. a lot of hardship and dysfunctional uh, like adulthoods here's here's how i try to sell this to people the number one factor on whether our lives are good or shitty is the quality of our relationships and that's not me speculating that's the best studies in the world indicate that the thing that results in quality of life and, and and length of life is the quality of the relationships of a of a given individual yeah i mean it even like manifests as like physical illness and things like that or, or the opposite physical health so boom suddenly the quality of our relationships is really important well we better not accidentally mess it up like i don't think it's bad people doing bad things i think it's perfectly decent people who don't know better and I find mm -hmm. that to be a tragic story. So can we provide the here's what nobody's really saying? Like, here's what no one's talking to you about. Like mm -hmm. these, these things that you take completely for granted, that you pay zero attention to, are actually what's going to decide whether or not your family stays together or not um, someday. And I, I don't know. I think there's probably an appropriate age for that message to, to resonate. And maybe I'm it's not till you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. I don't know. But. I really, really think young people need to learn how to do this. I frankly think their uh, their their school experience would be a lot better if they implemented some of these things too. You know, there's it, yeah. there's a lot of hardship like when kids growing up, and I I don't know, I, I had it pretty well. I got lucky, but mm -hmm. do you call it high school in Scotland? In the uh, yeah, high school, secondary school. Okay, yeah. yeah. Forgive my ignorance. I didn't know, but like, yeah, high school can be like really hard for a lot of people. Mm. But I think if you had heightened relationship skills, I think it would protect you from, from those hardships big time. I, 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 that's speculation. Yeah. People can be rough. Young people can be rough. I agree with you. Like, I think there's so many things that aren't taught in that kind of arena, like nutrition and health and mental health and relationships, you know, 
kids can't learn if they've got starving brains and depleted hearts. You know, we need to be looking at the things that are going to reinforce the learning, you know, and I think that's so, so important. And just from a kind of within the home point of view, for me, on an age appropriate level, I'm very aware of being honest with Bonnie, Bonnie is six, about how I'm feeling. You know, I will talk about my hormones. She'll come and like, have you taken your herbs today, mummy? <laughs> but I'm honest with her in an age appropriate way, because I think there was so much hidden from us. And I'm just really generalizing here. But that generation of kind of we wear the mask or our parents wear the mask that everything was OK, but we knew that yeah. they weren't, especially if you're an empathic kind of sensitive child, you pick up on what isn't said. And that was very much my story. So I'm very careful to validate her reality if she knows something wrong and she knows something's wrong before I do <laughs> she'll come and tell me I will say actually you're right Bonnie you're right and um, I'll use the best kind of words or actions to kind of get that across but I think that's so so important what we can do ourselves within our relationship but then yes there's a bigger societal kind of educational thing that I think is happening because people like you are speaking up and it kind of circles back to you know you went through this challenging painful experience but look what you've done with it and the impact isn't just on you and your son but there's a wider ripple effect as well and that's making waves it's exceedingly gratifying like it's uh for the more or less the worst thing that ever happened to me to be a source of, I don't know, purpose and, and usefulness to others is, it's really cool. So cool. Um, two more, so very last question, because I know your, um, your time limited. Sorry, this is actually quite a big one to throw in at the end. Okay. I'd love to know your thoughts on couples who stay together for the kids. Oh, I actually have made the case, I don't know if it was in the book or not, that staying together for the kids is a, to me, a perfectly legitimate way to like the reason to hang on to something. I, I, anything is, I, I I think would be the point I try to make today. How I think about it is this, and, and unless you're going to choose a life of solitude and celibacy, unless that's on the agenda, relationship partners inevitable. Yeah. Romantic, intimate interaction is inevitable. And I've come to believe that these patterns are going to emerge no matter who we're with if we don't like do something about whatever we have to contribute. And so, right, like that, that, that's really the point that I'm trying to make. Like why not stay together for the kids? Mm -hmm. Because they're an amazing reason to like fight the good fight, so to speak. On the flip side, I want to be careful how this comes across because I used to advocate uh, the, one of the things I flip-flopped on is I was really like, keep your marriage vows, like be married. If you promise to you know, stay married, like fight, 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 fight. If you're married to somebody who is like me and I'm never, ever going to hear you say something that I disagree with and honor it, if you can never say something's wrong and have me react to you in a manner that feels like love and care and respect... I'm asking you to voluntarily subject yourself to that for the rest of your life. And that's no way to live. Like that's, it's not okay to wake up day after day after day and experience the equivalent. I, I take umbrage with the word neglect and abuse sometimes, but I, I'm just trying to be careful about my words. Yeah. While I don't necessarily think people are married to narcissistic abusers, mm -hmm. 
I do think people can experience the equivalent of abuse. You know what I mean? From like the treatment they receive. Just because I'm not a sociopathic narcissist does not mean my wife didn't experience me on a really, really similar like level as somebody might being married to a sociopathic narcissist. And once like I made that connection, I'm like, who gives a shit whether I'm a sociopathic narcissist or not? If the things I do feel identical to like that person over there, like who cares about the label? Like I have to do something about it if I don't want her like saying words that I don't like. Right. You know, if we don't want to hear words like neglectful and abusive, mm-hmm. like maybe let's take responsibility for what we are doing that are resulting in another person interpreting like us that way. I'd get so hung up like on the word choice and the label that, right, your defensiveness comes in. And then again, once again, you're like not listening to a damn word they're saying and you're making it about you. Yeah. That's what we do. We make stuff about us and then we don't effectively love like the person that's trying to essentially ask us for help yeah 100 yeah. percent. and i think that is uh an awful awful cycle that really decent people find themselves in that that's what i'm trying to help with yeah i'm trying to help with like the mechanics of and in my experience most of the time <laughs> the guy in a heterosexual relationship is, is often the person who has the blind spots Mm -hmm. about how what he's doing or not doing, saying or not saying, is inadvertently communicating something he doesn't mean to communicate to his wife. Mm -hmm. And then that that erodes trust over time. And then when there's no trust and no safety, the relationship will either be awful or end. Both are bad. Like both feel bad to the average person. And that's, that's all. I'm sorry I use such like generic generalizing sort of language but it's it's hard to officially talk about this without doing that yeah of course and last question I would love to know why do you think so many of us suffer in silence and kind of wear the mask that everything's okay why do we let it get to that point you know that goes beyond repair I was speaking to sometimes I talk to my clients wives um like once in a while, I have a female client, by the way, but but usually, right, men and and I, I sometimes talk to their wives because it helps uh, get some more specificity about what the pain points are in their lives, mm-hmm. and it helps me, I think, more effectively work with their relationship partner. The themes are always the same, but we're mm-hmm. trying to apply like the actual life circumstances they're experiencing to these themes. Yeah, and she's married to somebody. I don't, I think this is okay. As long as I keep it anonymous in general, Mm -hmm. I don't mean to air people's dirty laundry. He has, he's been battling suicidal ideation since his teenage years. I think they're in their thirties. He had a significant injury in the military that has resulted in deteriorating health condition where he gets really, really awful headaches. I think they found a medicine where it's, it's a lot more manageable now, but like debilitating Mm -hmm. to the point where where like the light like hurts. I, a lot of people suffer migraines. And, and this is like a really intense version of that where yeah. he literally couldn't do his work. Mm-hmm. He couldn't be there for her. He couldn't be there for their little girl. And so, right, she's suffering in all these classic ways that you and I encounter all the time in relationships. He's just average, normal, typical ways. But then she has this added load of, I love this man. And they're childhood friends, by the way. They've known each other since they were like seven, eight years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm married to this man who I love, who 
battles depression and 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 has as as fought with you know these notions of of self harm before and who very legitimately has been suffering in a really awful way like a health condition and it's like she in her own relationship i don't you probably maybe were asking about like to the world maybe maybe um about wearing the mask which i know that i did mm. but man she was doing it like with him like she was yeah. carrying the load of i want to protect like him i was like really moved by this conversation yesterday because it was the first time in 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 several years of doing this now where i i'd thought about that before where she was like not only am i trying to like keep the peace in my home but there's this like this bonus so it's like already feel overextended and like i'm constantly the caretaker for everybody in the family and then i get nothing back ever and it really mm-hmm. hurts me but i don't even feel like i can say it out loud yeah. because because it, it it strikes me as petty compared to what he's battling and it strikes me as a potential trigger for mm-hmm. what he's battling and must have been brutal for her oh. But so they are like separated now. And I do think they're, I don't think there's any way of salvaging this. All I promised her was I'm going to do everything I can to be a support system to him, A, and B, help him understand these invisible things that have contributed to this. So that as your co-parenting relationship moves forward, you feel loved and considered and respected. And I want him to understand how, even though it's not his fault, none of this stuff was his fault it still hurt you deeply and resulted in safety and trust going away in your relationship. And right. It's, it, I can't emphasize that idea enough. I'm not a bad guy. Cause I left a dish by the sink. I'm not, but did it hurt my wife legitimately and all the other millions of things that I did? Yes. And does it mean she made the right choice? Like leaving? Yeah, I think so. But why do we wear masks? I we're afraid we're ashamed. I uh, would pretend everything's okay. I don't know. Sometimes it's like, we're polite friends would come over and we'd have like parties and stuff when I was sleeping in the, the, the separate bedroom and we'd like just carry on like everything was okay because you don't, I don't think it's polite dinner table conversation. It's not the kind of thing we, we share necessarily with, with friends and family. It doesn't always feel safe to. Yeah. I hear that from a lot of men. Mm. I don't feel like I can say this out loud to anybody in my life. Not my best friends, not my brothers, not my coworkers, not my dad, not anybody but I feel like I can say it to you, Matt. So thank you like for being here to have this conversation because I don't, I don't know who else I'd say it to. That's like really cool to hear. And right. It's, it's not even about me. It's not like some skill I bring to the table. I'm just existing to be like a partner for that. And that's actually a really nice model for them too, to think about with their relationship partner. You don't necessarily have to like execute things with a certain level of skill. Can you just be present? Can you just be like there, like with them? Because that's a huge part of it. The relief of for someone that has never had the opportunity to talk out loud, like when they come to you, must be just massive. Like how many people compare their pain to others? My pain isn't as big as theirs. Like, so I should just get on with it. Oh my gosh. And to be able to actually find someone where they can just be themselves, take the mask off and speak their truth. That's when the learning comes. That's when the reflection, when we're actually honest with ourselves. It's amazing. It's, I think a big part of it also is the I'm not alone feeling that we started at kind of the beginning of this conversation talking about. Um, It's so nice to feel seen and understood and to not feel so many of us are stuck inside our own heads and we 
you know, again, a lot of it's fear. I think I don't want people to know I'm having this level of dysfunction or that I'm the kind of person who thinks these things or feel these things or does these things. I, I'm the kind of man that his wife wants to leave. I didn't want to be known as that guy. Yeah. That felt really bad, like really bad. Just that one selfish idea alone. Yeah. Which again is so so selfish. It's so self-centered to make that about me. Um, but it is an honest thing I thought and felt at the time. And how amazing is it to be adopt honesty and normalize some of these things that we kind of repress down because we're not alone and so many other people are feeling them. And it's amazing that you kind of hold the space for your work to do that. And I will, of course, put the link to your book. I recommend that everyone goes and listens to it. You're a great writer. It's so easy to listen to. It's like I'm in a coffee shop with you kind of listening to it. I love it. And also your coaching work and your website. And I'll just make sure that they're available. Thank Thank you. you. And that's, it's really kind of you. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to meet you and uh, be here. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. I know you have another appointment. I'm really grateful for your time and that we made it work from America to Scotland. (laughs) Pleasure. I'm really grateful for yours. Oh, definitely. Thank you, Matt. It's so amazing to speak to you. I'm so grateful. You as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, thanks, Matt. That was awesome and so insightful. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Please do let me know your feedback and what resonated the most. I'd love to hear from you. And if you feel compelled to, please go and leave me a review on iTunes. That would be amazing. And, and, and one more ask, please do share with someone that you think may benefit. So I hope you have an amazing week. Please do reach out if you would like my support. And I will be back next week with another episode of Behind the Mother Mask. Take care now.